the uh, Yom Kippur service has uh, many interesting features and uh, there are obviously pieces of it that are very central um, more central than others central themes I mentioned I believe last week uh, two of them one is the uh, the various confessions that we say on Yom Kippur I did want to add one thing to what I said last week and the second are these penitential prayers called Slichot we all know there's a custom different communities have different customs about the recitation of Slichot well before Yom Kippur in fact the Svardin have the custom to begin reciting their penitential prayers at the month of Rosh Chodesh Elul so it's 40 days before Yom Kippur the Ashkenazim, of course, uh, start the Saturday night before Rosh Hashanah, typically. But these are actually, a cu- and that is a very old custom, but the main Srichot are recited on Yom Kippur itself. This morning, actually, is the big day for Srichot. Actually, this morning's Srichot are the big ones. These are the, the Thursday before Yom Kippur. You'd give me those are the big, these are the big, the main Srichot. In the Ashkenazic tradition, these are the most significant slichot, the focus on the attributes of God's mercy, you give me don't. And it's interesting that actually, whichever way it works, the slichot that are recited all these different days before Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, uh, some of the sort of the excerpts of them, are, they're excerpted out and recited on Yom Kippur itself. So that, for example, this morning's slichot are recited during the Iwa of Yom Kippur. Hashem, Hashem, that's in the Iwa, is focusing specifically on the Yigimu Midot, etc. Anyway, I did want to add one point to what I mentioned last week about the confessions, and then I wanted to deal with a different theme of Yom, a different prayer or a different service that we have on Yom Kippur, which we typically, I don't think, I, I almost never talk about it, but I think it's important. But in terms of the confessions, I wanted to make one point about these confessions for Yom Kippur. And that is that the confessions that we have on Yom Kippur are uh, are basically uh, they are general statements about mistakes, sins that are, have been made over the course of the year. In the short form, it's the Ashamnu, which are sort of mostly general statements. General statements. Um, and then there's the Alchet, which are very long, and they have a double acrostic. Both of them are in alphabetical order, by the way, because the idea of the alphabetical order is that it's sort of all-encompassing. So the Alchets are, and some of them are more specific. My favorite Alchet is, Alchet Shechatanolofanechah the sin that we have committed through our, through our confessions. That's that to me is a very interesting confession. Um, in any event, that's a different. There's a famous teaching of Nachman about that, but that's another conversation. Very interesting. In any event, those are the main confessions on Yom Kippur and even before Yom Kippur at Mincha, and the service before Yom Kippur. There's also a confession, but in the Ilu, there's a different confession. Not to wanted to make that point. I, I may have mentioned it briefly. I wanted to just expand briefly upon it. That in the Ilu had a thought about this. In the Ewa, they have the short confession, Ashamnu. But in the Ewa, we don't have the long confession. We being the Ashkenazic 
traditional classical Ashkenazic rite does not have a long confession in, in the last prayer of Yom Kippur. Instead, we have a very short little paragraph or two, which the Talmud says is the core for Ne'ilah. In fact, according to one view in the Talmud, Ne'ilah is not a separate prayer. It's not a whole prayer. It's just this one confession. That was Shmuel's point of view. And the words, what is the, what is the confession of Ne'ilah? What is, the, what is Ne'ilah? The Gemara says that according to Shmuel, Rav says you pray another prayer, as we do. The whole Shmona Esrei with the blessings. But Shmuel said no. Shmuel said, You stretch your hand out to, to, the, to the sinners. Which we say in the Ewa, actually. We say, we say that instead of, instead of uh, the Alchet. We don't say Alchet. God, you stretch your hand out to sinners. Which we'll see in this particular Machser. And if we all have the same one. But in this master, the very end of Yom Kippur, 200 and 250 it is? Yes, this one is 250. The middle of two, towards the last paragraph on page 250, um, you stretch your hand out to transgressors. Your right hand is stretched forth to receive the repentant. That's the first line. And this one is 250. 265. Okay. Then it continues, is, you have taught us, God, to make confession before you on all our sins so that we may stay our hands from violence. That's the translation of the translator says, we may stay our hands from violence. Does anybody have a different translation? What do you have? Yeah. Oppression. So the our scroll says, Oshek Yodeinu is oppression. What's interesting is the word Oshek. Oshek can mean oppression. Typically translated as oppression. Violence, I don't see Oshek so much as violence. But the word Oshek appears in the Torah in a more narrow context. Do not be Oshek, the wages you pay to your laborers. And the Oshek there refers presumably not so much to oppression of laborers, but oppression in the sense that you're not paying them. O- Oshek is taken in the narrow sense to mean failure to pay your workers. So Oshek Yodeinu can, could be translated not as the violence of our hands or the oppression of our hands, but I would say the theft of our hands. Oshek Yodeinu is theft. I would say the word Oshek carries with it two meanings. It means violence or oppression in general, and it means theft in the, in, the, in the narrow sense. You have taught us, God, to confess that we stop the theft of our hands or the Oshek of our hands, and you receive us with full repentance before you, even as the fire offerings and the sacrifices, for the sake of the words that you have spoken. That's how it begins. I want to come back to that. I had a thought yesterday about this paragraph. I've been reading it my whole life. And suddenly I, I had an interesting thought about it. 
Then we continue and we say, there's no end to, the, to our, to our debt. There's no end to the fire offerings we owe. We understand that it's virtually limitless. You know what our end is. Therefore, you multiply your forgiveness. Then we go with a little riff over here about the nature of human existence. What are we? What is our life? What is our piety? What's our righteousness? It's rhetorical. What is our strength? What can we say before you, O oh God? Are not the mighty ones nothing before you? And famous people, as if they were not. Wise ones have without knowledge. Understanding ones as though we're devoid of discretion. For the multitude of work is emptiness. The days of life are vanity. The preeminence of man over beast is naught. All is vanity. That's the first paragraph. Then the second paragraph remarkably starts, you have set the human being aside from the beginning and acknowledged that he, that she, could stand before you. Yet who can say to you, what do you do? And if you be righteous, what, what good is that to you? Nonetheless, you have given us the Day of Atonement as a case, as an end, they translate, a forgiving and pardoning of our iniquities that we may stay our hand from violence. Again, it's the same term, that we stay our hand violence or theft, and return to you to perform your statutes with a perfect heart. And you and your mercies have, have compassion upon us. You don't want the world to be destroyed. And we cite a bunch of verses. This is the confession of Ne'ilah. It's the last confession of Yom Kippur. And one can ask the very good question, what exactly is this confession? What are we confessing? There always seems to be one sin that's mentioned over here, although it has, I think, broad implications. Which we have in both paragraphs. Stay our hands from Oshek, which as I point out, in the narrow sense, means theft, as understood rabbinically, in the broader sense, means oppression or violence or whatever. So here I, was, I have s- several thoughts about this confession. Several, and I'll say the following. First of all, I think the word confession, vidui, has the word hitzvadot, related to the word lehodot, modim, has two meanings in, in, in Hebrew. One is to confess. The other is to, well, actually three meanings. To thank. It can mean to thank. Tov lehodot Hashem. can mean to thank. It can mean to confess. And I would say it has a third, slightly different feel to it, to, uh, to, uh, to uh, acknowledge. To acknowledge. And that's what it means over here, actually. It's not a confession in the sense I've done this wrong and that wrong and this wrong and that wrong. It is to acknowledge. Now, what are we acknowledging in these two paragraphs? So, on a simple level, we are, we are acknowledging what it means to be a person. And we're saying that in these two paragraphs, that on one hand, which is the first paragraph, in this sort of meditation on human existence, uh, we ask ourselves the question, we are so pleased with ourselves, but who in fact are we? I mean, we're fleeting creatures who, for the most part, uh, don't have deep insight into very much. And, and it goes on this way. We think we do so much good. How much good do we really do? We think we're so powerful. How powerful are we at the end, right? And, and 
standing before God, we recognize the disparity between the eternal God, the omnipotent God, and, and the mortal human being. That's the first paragraph. It ends by saying, the preeminence of the human over the animal is naught for all is vanity, a verse from Ecclesiastes. And then suddenly we have another line, but you have set us apart from the beginning and recognize that we can stand before you. Stand before God. We call the Shemona Esrei the, uh, the uh, Amida. And that is because this, this prayer, we actually, uh, the posture, it's very interesting. Different cultures have different ways to stand. The Muslims typically bow down. Because that's all about, it's all about submission, which is very interesting. You go to different societies, you see the way they pray, the way they hold their bodies. The idea of standing in prayer is very striking because what it means is that somehow you have, we have stature before God. We talk almost, one might say, as a, as a kind of equal in the conversation. We have different postures in prayer, but that is one of the main postures that we have. You have set us aside from the beginning, despite what we said in the first paragraph, to stand before you. And even though it's absurd, because who can tell to God what to do? And if we do good, what does God care, really? Nonetheless... You've given us this day with your love, a day of a day which is the completion of a cycle of forgiveness. And we have so the first point about the Vidu of Yom Kippur, that this particular Vidu, which is the, the last Vidu of Yom Kippur, is not Vidu, I think, so much in terms of confession, but sort of acknowledging who we are. To acknowledge is very important. And uh, acknowledging what it means to be human. I would say that last uh, Sunday we had a speaker here who uh, talked about two agadot we have in the Talmud. She, she mentioned, discussed two agadot that we have in the Talmud. And she gave her take on the two agadot. I must say, I certainly agree what she said about the second agadah. But the first agadah is different, actually. It's first story, very famous story. Story in the Agada is this. It's a guy named Primo. Primo is mentioned in a few places in the Talmud. Primo was sitting in his house the day before Yom Kippur when somebody knocked on the door. A poor schlepper. And he was knocking on the door. He was hungry. So Primo said, Send him food. And the schlepper said, Everybody's sitting inside. Why should I be outside? Come to the table. Sits at the table. Okay, come to the table. He's disgusting. He's acting in a disgusting way. He takes, so Primo says, what kind of behavior is this at my table? Then he takes his corpse up, his mucus into a cup, at which point Primo says, get out, get out. So the fellow pretends that he dies. He faints. People think he's dead. People say, Primo killed him. Primo killed somebody. Primo's very embarrassed. He runs off to a bathroom outside the house, of course, the outhouse. But this fellow's not that he follows him. And he there, and Primo recognizes he's a lot of bow-downs before him. So who is this guy? He's actually Satan. This is Satan. The, the story begins by saying, Primo used to say, his, what his favorite expression was, an arrow in the eye of Satan. So Primo said to him, why are you doing this to me? What, what is this? He says, I don't like the way you talk about me. He says, what should I say about you? You should say the verse in Zechariah, Yigar Hashem B'chaz Satan, God rebukes Satan. That's the message. That's, that's the. Now what is that actually about? 
What is that about? So I'll tell you what I think it's about, okay? I'll tell you what I think it's about. It's not just about not being judgmental. That probably is that aspect. But it's not about that. It's about something else. It's Erev Yom Kippur. I, what is the verse at the end? You got. It's, I said it's not about not being judgmental. That, I mean, that element. That is. Yigar Hashem Bechaz Satan. God rebukes Satan. You shouldn't say an arrow in the eye of Satan. He says, God rebukes Satan. The verse in Zechariah, right? The Haftorah of Hanukkah. Yigar Hashem Bechaz Satan. Here's something. The story is taking place Erev Yom Kippur, as is the other story that she cited. And the point is a very simple point. Why am I outside and everybody's inside? That, that's the key to the story. Because you know what it is? Everybody is pretending that Satan is outside. That, that's the point of the story. But Satan is not outside. Everybody's pretending, you know. We're so wonderful, you know. Everybody wants to pretend. Look at our family. We're so well-mannered, you know. Everybody says, gee, I'm such a schlepper. I'm fighting with my wife. Everybody else such a happy marriage. They never, they, they never fight, you know. But of course, it's all Shekhar V'chazov, because the fact of the matter is, Satan is not outside. Satan is inside. And, and actually, I, I mentioned this to her, Erev Yom Kippur. Because on Yom Kippur, and we'll get to this this year today, on Yom Kippur is the great sacrificial service of Yom Kippur. The key piece in the sacrificial service of Yom Kippur is remarkable, actually, is that the high priest who performs the service ha- is given by the community two, two goats. One of, one of these two, and, he, he had, and the high priest has a lottery, a goro. He, plays, he chooses by lot. One of the two goats is brought to the Holy of Holies and is sacrificed in the Holy of Holies. The second goat stands outside and the high priest walks over to the second goat which is not the goat sacrificed to God, Soir Echad Hashem, Soir Echad Azazel. What Azazel is, is not clear, but it's sent out. Azal is to go out. It's sent out to the wilderness. The Ramban called it Shochad Samael, a bribe to the devil. And that goat is sent out into the wilderness, sent away. And that goat is the goat upon which the high priest confesses all the sins places his two hands on the head of the goat, confesses all the sins, hands it over to Ishiti, to someone who's standing, and that person takes, and the Torah says, takes the goat out to the desert. The Talmud says, thinks the goat is actually killed, thrown down a cliff and killed. Now, what is that about? So the point is, however we want to formulate it, the Ramban is very st- famous and very striking. The point is, this is my take on it, and I think the Ramban is saying this, but I think this is what it means means we like to believe that we can transform ourselves. That is our myth, actually. Jewish myth. I don't mean it's false. I mean, that's, that's a fun, basic to the Torah, basic to Jewish tradition. Jacob becomes Israel. You become a different person. As Samuel said to Saul, you'll meet the prophets, you'll become a different person. But that's not actually what happens. It never happens. Because we can't actually change ourselves fully. There's a piece of us you can never change. There's the devil inside everybody that can never be completely transformed. That's the reality. So on Yom Kippur, we're making the point that there were two sacrifices, one of which is about the sacrifice in the Holy of Holies. But the other one, 
the, the, the one that's sent out, that's the one that is representing the piece of us that actually can't be reincorporated, the piece that can't be completely transformed. And there, the way we achieve atonement is by sending that piece of ourselves out. We don't destroy it, we don't know that you can eliminate it. But symbolically we're saying we don't want it to be part of ourselves. We want to separate from it. That's the Shochet with Samael. That's exactly the point of that Medrash, actually. That's the story. That's the Agada. That's what the Agada is saying. Why is everybody sitting at the table, says Satan, and I'm outside? Are you kidding? Are you telling me that Satan's outside? Is that what you're really saying? Of course, that's, that's not true. That's, that's the point. It's, talk, don't talk about me as if I'm some stranger, he says. I'm no stranger. I live in your house, and you know me very well. That's the point of the story. It's a very deep story, actually. It's not about not judging at all. Nothing to do with that. That's exactly as I say it. It's Erev Yom Kippur. Because on Yom Kippur, of course, we have the soil Azazel. That's the point. Now, that's the confession. That's the last confession of Yom Kippur. It's not so much I have sinned. It's more who I am. I have come to recognize over time, over this day, all of my possibilities, and I also come to recognize the other part of it. In case the Ishechovotenu, we say, there is no end, we say. That's what we say. There's no end to the sacrifices we'd have, as if to say to God, listen, we, we said these long al with a double acrostic the whole day, but you know what? The truth is we're running out of time. Yom Kippur ends in 30 minutes. And if we're going to start with a list of, list of sins, we'll be here till next Yom Kippur. There's no end. So therefore, we're, gonna, we're not going to bother with that stuff. Forget that. Let me say something different, which is, this is who I am. But since you also created me, you know that better than me. If you, if you want a world, you deal with human beings. Now, what's interesting is, the one confession that we seem to have is, to stop the violence of our hands. So I want to mention two thoughts about that expression, which is the core, it appears in both paragraphs. You have taught us to confess, so I want to say two things, one I've said many times in the past, and one I realized yesterday actually, something about that confession, which is very interesting. What I've said in the past a hundred times is this, that that expression, to actually is playing off something else that we say on, uh, on uh, Yom Kippur. What we're saying on Yom Kippur, of course, that towards the end of Yom Kippur, actually before Nila, towards the end of the day, we are reading the book of Jonah. Yonah. It's very striking that we read Yonah as the Haftorah for Yom Kippur. And the story of Yonah, we know, is that Yonah is sent to Nineveh. Nineveh is the the wicked city of Nineveh, the evil empire. Axis of evil, not Axis, they are the evil. That's evil, right? Nineveh, Babel. Sent to Babel to, to, to God says, go to Nineveh. Their cries have ascended before me. Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh. The reason is he doesn't want to go to Nineveh, as he says in the last chapter of Jonah, I knew what, if I go to Nineveh and they repent, you're going to forgive them. He doesn't want them to be forgiven. So he doesn't want to go, but he's forced to go, he goes. He finally gets to Nineveh, and he says to Nineveh, he has a very short speech there. Five words. 
Jeremiah spoke for 52 chapters trying to get people to repent. Sagonish Telfin, as we say, it didn't do any good. Jonah has five words. Everybody's repenting. The king of Ninveh gets off his throne, puts on sackcloth. The animals are wearing sackcloth. And the king of Ninveh speaks to the people. He says, listen, he says, everybody should repent and change their ways. And remove the Hamas. There it refers to theft, the, the violence in the, the violence of their hands. I would roughly translate as It's exactly that point. So the confession of Neila actually, I, I thought in the past, was drawn from was drawn from the story of Jonah. And of course everybody's doing the same, everybody's doing that. Then Jonah, God says, God God repented of the evil, God doesn't destroy. So Jonah's upset. He's very angry. What are you angry about? You're so angry. I knew you were going to do this because I know the way you are. Right? I know that you are a God who, who, who repents of the evil. You're going to let them get off the hook. See, so that's not right. God says to Jonah, it was a gourd that was growing and Jonah was sitting under the gourd and shielded from the, from, the, from the heat and it died. Jonah was very upset. You're upset about that gourd. I'm terribly upset. Listen, you didn't, you didn't create the gourd, you just benefited from it. How do you think I feel about all these people and the animals, right? Who don't know one thing from the next. Shouldn't I have pity on them, on, 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 my, on my creatures? Which is what we appeal to in this last confession. As it says, but you don't want, the, there's no end to the, no, there's limitless pro- problems. You don't want the world to be destroyed. If you took us to task, everything we do, we have no world. Since you created us, you judge us, you look at us differently. So we're acknowledging that. That's how, that's how we end the ego. What I came to realize yesterday was the following. It suddenly struck me that the confession of Neila, actually, has actually a different reference point within the, within the Torah. And the passage, actually, that I think the author of this uh, confession, which is ancient, it's, the Talmud already mentions this confession, so you're talking about at least 1,500 years old, this confession had something else in mind. I realized it yesterday. And that is in the beginning of the book of Bamidbar, so it talks about the, 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 the community is being assembled around the Mishkan and they're being counted, each tribe is being counted and the Levium are counted separately. And in chapter 5, after we finish setting up the camp, in this in Tanakh, let's see, it would be in chapter 5 of Bamidbar, on page... Uh, Chapter 5, verse number 5, page 290. So God spoke to Moshe. Vayidaber Hashem al Moshe Lemar. Daber b'nei Yisrael. Speak unto the children of Israel. Ish o isha, man or woman. Ki yasu mikol chatot ha'adam limomal b'ashem v'yashmah ha'nefeshahi. If any person does any of the sins that people commit... Breaking faith with God. That's what the translator says. And the person realizes guilt. That soul is guilty. Next verse. They shall confess their sin. Here we have the obligation to confess. And the, next, the end of the verse is very strange. 
Vachamishito Yosef Olav, Vinatan Rasher Ashamro. They should restore the Asham. They should, right? They should restore the Asham, restore the thing they, they, that, was, that made them guilty. They should add a fifth and give it to the one whom they wronged. And if they, and if they have no, uh, if that person is not around and has no, no relative, then the Asham is restored, is given to the priest. Apart from the sacrifice which is made on behalf of the one who has sinned. And it struck me that this is a very strange set of verses. Because the verses begin by saying, anybody who has sinned, from any sin, right? No matter what the sin is, and that person recognizes guilt, and the person has to confess. So we have confession for all and every sin. But the specific sin the Torah mentions is not all sins. It seems to be one sin. Theft. You should return the thing you took, it says. Return, what do you mean you, what do you return it to the person? It's talking about something you took from somebody and you have to return it. So even though the Torah speaks about all sins, but in the next verse, it speaks about a particular sin. You give it back to the person whom you wronged and if that person is not around and there's a redeemer who stands in for that person and if there's no redeemer, then the priest stands in. You give it to God or to God's emissaries who are the priests, instead of, in, in, in lieu of giving it to the one that you took it from. And this, I believe, is what the composer of the last confession of Yom Kippur had in mind. There's no limit to our sins. They're, we say, they're in every which way. But the particular sin that's singled out to represent all sins, actually, is Luman Nechdal Meyoshek Yodena, which is theft, actually. In other words, and picking up on what the Torah says, the Torah is giving the example, the example of Me'ilah, the example of sinning against God in Bamidbar chapter 5 is actually the, this Asham. The, the, the Talmud has a name for this. What, what, what does the Talmud call it? Yes? It is, yes. No, it says, Mikol chatol Adam l'momal b'ashem. No, if a, if a man commits the sin, on the contrary, it says to transgress against God. No, it says to, to transgressions against God. But then in the example that it gives, to restore, you have to restore the thing that made you guilty and add a fifth and bring a sacrifice. It seems to be talking about dafka sin that's committed against another human being. It's very strange, actually. It starts, when you start reading it, a sin against God. Even more in striking over here is that this expression, lim o mal bashem, and the idea of a goel, someone that stands in for the person, that language is lifted straight from the end of Vayikra, in the, in the blessings and the curses. will be. And then you also have vidui. And you also have the idea of the goel. Eventually God will take you back. And there, the, the, the sin that's singled out in the Torah in that chapter, chapter 26 of Vayikra, is failure to keep the, the, the sabbatical years. It's also a kind of theft, if you think about it. You're taking what's not yours. The sabbatical year, you're not supposed to work. If you take it, herein lies the, the solution to our problem, actually. <laughs> it's actually very good. In other words, what you have in the Torah, all the past take us back to the Chumash, you know, 
In the Torah, you have two, two I say legal sections or two, two parashiot that have parallel language. They talk about sin as, as me'ila. They talk about confession. They talk about redemption. The first is the blessings and the curses in the book of Ayikra. The second is chapter 5 in the book of Numbers, chapter 5 in Bamidbar. In the, first, in the second situation, the example of the sin is taking someone else's property. In the first example, the sin is not observing the sabbatical years. And the point of the parallel between the two is very simple. The point is not, taking a, not, not participating in, this, in, this, in the sabbatical year means, in effect, that you are taking things that don't belong to you. The point of the Chumash is, as God said straight out, three words, aretz. it's my land, it's not yours. If you take it, says God, you're a thief. The sin of the sabbatical years, it's the desecration of the Sabbath, but it's represented in Vayikra, if you want to, you could look at it differently, it's the act of theft. If you, this world is not your world. But if you, everything, and, and more globally, and that's the point over here in Bamidbar, and that's the point of the composer of the Vidu of Yom Kippur, because you are put in my world, says God. It's your world. You are the creator. You put us here. You gave us all kinds of privileges in this world. But if we take things we shouldn't be taking, then we're stealing. That's Oshek Yodeinu. In a sense, every sin comes back to the same thing. Every sin can be seen in that way. If you see yourself as living in God's world... And God, give, I give you right to this and that, but not, I give you right to your property. I don't give you right to take someone else's property. I give you rights if you obey my rules. If you live in my house, you obey my rules. You don't want to obey my rules, you don't have no right to be in my house. You have no right to be in my house, everything you took is actually not yours. So you're a thief. That's the confession. The confession is, I live in your world, oh God, but I don't actually appreciate that. And therefore, I take things all the time that don't belong to me. I act in a way that doesn't give me rights, so everything I'm taking is theft. That's the parallel between the two. Shemitah is not Shabbos. Shemitah is Gezo. That's the point. It's my, because God says, it's my earth. You have a right to live in my earth the way I want you to live. If you live in, inappropriately, then you're taking what, what doesn't belong to you. And God is very strict about what that means in both stories. That's the confession. But what's interesting is that Oshek Yodeinu, it's actually very beautiful in a sense because it's not a confession about theft. It's a confession about everything. As we say, there's no end. But the particular thing we single out is what it says in the parasha. And the one who understood this probably was the king of Nineveh, the evil empire. He understood it very well. Everybody should sin, put on sackcloth. Maybe God, he says, will see what we do, as the Talmud points out. Not what we say, but what we do. Let's, to, to, to restore what is not ours. That's the point, to restore. That's the, that's the confession of the ego. So it's not about it, all the sins. It's one sin, but it's much more than that. It's about my place in the world. I would say not confession. I would say acknowledgement. What do you want to say, Zoe? I was going to say the confession is acknowledgement. Right. And the acknowledgement has the other side to it as well, which is the human possibilities. You have given us the right to stand before you, which is about the grandeur of the, the majesty of the human being to engage God in the dialogue, to stand before God. It's crazy, but that's, our, our possi- that's what we could do. Yeah? I just want to clarify this. The Pesach in the Midbar, um, which was interpreted basically as a, a sign of theft as a paradigm, but I kind of saw it as um, you know, the monetary amount uh, that is 
Gemara has a name for this parsha. Anybody know what it is? Gezel Hagir. The parsha of Gezel Hagir. That's how the Gemara refers to it. What can I tell you? If we were all much younger people, we come back to Drisha, we'd go in Gemara together. Tragedy, actually. Tragedy. They're never too old, but it's also without, without 15 years old either, you know what I mean? Gezel Hager. The parsha, the parsha of Gezel Hager. Of course, why is it Gezel Hager? You steal from the... Because, because only the Ger, the convert, the, you stole money from a Jew by choice, okay? The Jew by choice in Halacha has no relatives. Therefore, the end of the parsha says, if the person has no Goel, who has no Goel, the Gemara asks, Everybody has a cousin, a third cousin, a fourth cousin, so everybody's related, right? But one person has no. The person who chose Judaism today, she's cut herself off. Halachically, she has, technically speaking, doesn't have any relatives. So therefore, you stole from that person. You stole from the gear. How do you make good? You, there's no, nobody to give it to. Ain't go ail, says the Gemara. This is the parish of Gezel. The Torah is specifically concerned with theft. It singles out one person. The person who two days ago was not Jewish and today she's Jewish and you stole and then she died or disappears or whatever, How, what do you do in such a case? How do you make restitution? You want to, there's nobody to restore it to. Says God, no, then you give it to me. I stand in for the gear, says God. So you can't give it to me, so to give it to my priest. That's the parasha of Gezel HaGer. It's very, but it's called Gezel because the parasha does sound that way. The Asham must be restored. How do you restore it? It must be talking about a case. In other words, my point is this. My point, the literary point is, the same way when the Torah speaks about the covenant in Vayikra, it talks about to annul my covenant, but it singles out one mitzvah, which is Shemitah. It doesn't mean it's only about Shemitah. That's absurd. It's about everything. But the example the Torah gives is Shemitah, the same thing over here. It's about Mikol Chatol Tadam, any sin. <coughs> but the Torah gives examples. The example the Torah gives is theft. And that's what the composer of the Yom Kippur service understood in a very deep way. And the, the acknowledgement is, I live in your world. That's the acknowledgement. I live in your world. And it's not that I'm nothing. It's not that, as we say often in the Slichot, which focuses on human frailty and error and all that, which is important to focus on, I think, to get a sense of balance, you know. But on the other hand, the acknowledgement of, of, of the video of Yom Kippur is not just that. It's awesome, but you have set the human aside. We're not just another creature, we say in the second paragraph. The first paragraph ends by saying the human being and the animal are the same. We create the same day, sixth day. But the second paragraph says we're not the same. Because after all, the Pasha continues, we are God's stewards on earth. That's what the Torah says. We are representing God on earth. We're in God's image, in God's likeness, whatever that means. So the, the so-called acknowledgement then has not just the negative side of it, it has a positive side too. It has a very majestic side. This is who we are. And we, we come before you acknowledging that. That's what we are saying on the, uh, on the last video of Yom Kippur. Okay, that's the first thing I want to say about Vidui. I was very excited to discover this a couple of days ago. And the first point is also a very important point. 
I mentioned the particular story of Plimo because because we there was a shear about it a couple of days ago, and I by, by amazing coincidence my wife who was in Israel heard a shear about the same agada from Rabbi Zinger from Akar Chayim who said exactly what I had said to Diana Ginsburg, exactly slightly different in terms of the story of Azazel, exactly the point about Satan. Satan's not out there. We like to believe that. It's here. I'll, I'll make one other point. I was thinking in terms of this business with the Satan, with the, the, the idea of, of actually acknowledging, because that's how I got into this, acknowledging who we are. It's not just acknowledging who we are, actually. It's also acknowledging who the other is. And my example I like to quote is the following. The story of Joseph, of course, which concludes the book of Genesis, one of the great dramas of, our, of the Chumash, so, of course, the, the issue in the Joseph story, very Yom Kippur issue, is can you actually put things back together again? Because you have a family which has many problems. The problem is not only Joseph and his brothers. That would be a foolish misreading of the Chumash. It's not just Joseph and his brothers, which is, it's also the brothers and Joseph. It's also Jacob and Joseph. It's also Jake, Joseph and Jacob. It's Jacob and all his other children. And it's all the other children in Jacob. And it goes back to the way the whole family is formed in Breshit, which is the conflict between the two wives and then the conflict between their children. There's conflict at every turn. What's interesting is that one of the great moments, the moment when it seems to the possibility of coming together is possible, is when Judah actually, of course, takes responsibility for Binyamin. And then, as we all know in the story, they go back to Egypt and this viceroy, who is Joseph, of course, wants to keep Benjamin for himself. It's his brother that he loves, who wasn't involved in his sale, and his real brother, they have to share the same mother, it's his only brother. So he frames Benjamin as a stealing this magical goblet. He says to the rest of the family, you can go home in peace, go back to your father, go in peace. This thief will stay with me. At which point in the Chumash, Judas speaks up. It's one of the great speeches. What's interesting, of course, is and some other time I have many thoughts about this recently, but leave that for now. But Yehuda says, basically, look, he says, take me instead. And the reason is because I took responsibility for him. I told my father that I would take, I'd be responsible. Since I'm responsible, I can't go back without him. So therefore, since someone has to pay the price, take me and let him go. But in, before he gets to that point, which is the last, that's, his, that's the, he makes a different point about his father. Here's, look, he says, here's the reason you have to take me instead of, instead of this kid. It's because, you have to understand, he says, that our father has a special relationship with this boy. And before we left, he told us the following. He says, listen, he says, you have to understand that his brother is missing. He actually says he's dead. His brother died. He's the only one left. He says, and, and, and our father said to us, Atem yidatem kishnayim yodoli ishti. He says, look, my wife had two children. One of them left. And I think he's been torn to pieces. I haven't seen him until this day. Now you would take this one if misfortune befalls him, right? I'll go down to the grave and suffering to the grave. So Judah says, therefore, he says, you have to take me instead. 
Because if it go back and he sees the boy's missing, he'll die. For mate. And we will be responsible for bringing our father down to the grave. Now, speech has many interesting features to it, but I want to mention one. And that's Judah's statement, which he says without rancor. Let me tell you something about our father. He had a wife. There was one woman that he loved. She had two, his wife had two children. Now, what does that mean, his wife had two children? He's standing in front of Jacob, Joseph, right? There were 12 brothers. <laughs> and this is the source of all the problem in the family, basically. The conflict between the wives, the conflict Jacob loves one and doesn't love the other one. But what Judah is able to say, it's not simple. He says, let me tell you something. About, let me tell you about my father. He had one wife. You may think there are 12 of us. You may say to yourself, well, what if I take this boy? So what's the, you still have a whole bunch. It's a big family. You know? Okay, you lose a kid. It's tragic. But okay, there's so many. It's not that way. He didn't have so many. He has one wife. Not my mother. She's not his wife. He's married to her. She's not his wife. The wife is one. Rachel was his wife. That's the one he loves. And we accept that, actually. That's why I stand before you. Because, because we care about a father. We don't want him to get hurt. And therefore, it's awesome, actually, you know? That's the confession. That's, confession means to acknowledge the, I acknowledge the other person. You, every, we always want to change everybody, typically to suit our own ends, you know? But you reach a point where you say, I'm not going to change her. That's the way she is. I love her anyway, but the pieces of we, we actually can change, even though we believe everything can be changed. But we also know it can't be changed. That's why we have the Sari Lazazel, because it can't be changed. So you, have to, you, can, you, can, you can work with it. You can send it away symbolically. Satan sits at everybody's table. That's the point. And to, if you believe otherwise, you can't actually confess, because the only way to confess is to confess honestly. And not a dishonest. That's the vidu we say. Our, our, the vidu is It's my favorite vidu. With the sin we have, the, I confess my sin. What sin? The sin of confession. Awesome. That's the point. My father had one wife, and which is true in the Chumash. When it was Jacob's wives, B'nai Rachel, Eshet Yaakov, Yosefu, Ben Yamin. It was the family. It was Leah. It was this one. And the sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, were two. And by the way, the end of the Torah is the same way. Where Jacob constructs his family, he says, take me out of here, bury me back in the grave of, 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 of Maratha Machpelah. For there are, there are buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. And then is buried Isaac and his wife Rivka. There I buried Leah. Didn't say my wife. I buried Leah there. By the way, nonetheless, and this is part of the acknowledgement, when it comes to giving the kingship, he doesn't give it to Joseph that he loves. He gives it to Judah. Because there's something about being honest. And that is he understands the truth. He loves Joseph, of course. But Joseph can't be the king. That's the point of that. That's how the... That's at the end, that's the great, recon, that's the great acknowledgement. That's the reconciliation. To acknowledge the truth. Only the truth sets us free. There's no other way. That's the, to be honest with ourselves. That's the point. It's easy to say the words not always easy to do it, but that's the confession, that's the acknowledgement of, of Yom, this is who I am. I'm gonna, I try to get better, of course, I, of course. It doesn't say I'm, just, I'm not going to change, I'll never change. We try to change. But we also recognize the limitations. You're not going to be reborn to a different person. It doesn't work that way. If we can change one, you know, last year I said, Yom Kippur, I said, let's not change a million things. Let's change one thing. For next year, let's change one thing. Just one. Just one? Yeah, change one. 
Then next year we'll show you something else. You know what I mean? Let's do one mitzvah, one thing. Because that's more likely to have some effect than to say, I'm a new person. Maybe it happens on occasion, but it's rare. And I think it's everywhere that we fully transform ourselves. Yes, Michelle. Yeah, I always wondered why Yaakov um, doesn't move Rachel to Marat Machpelah. Do you think it's because of this? Because he feels he has to acknowledge that things did go a certain way because of this, and he can't he can't have her there. Right. I think Rachel not being buried in Marat. Rachel, at the end of the day, I mean the later prophetic writings and the rabbinic tradition gives it a, a positive spin. She has to, there, there's something to be said for the one who is, who is not there. There's something, there's something, look, at the end of the day, our favorite of all the patriarchs and the major, the one we love is Rachel. That's the truth of it. We love Rachel more than anybody else, as we read on Rosh Hashanah. It's a very simple reason why we love Rachel. It's very simple. Because the people that we love is not about the most moral people in the world the best people in the world. That's not the way it works. You love the people that actually love you. And we know one thing. Well, we're in trouble, okay? Which the Jewish people are often in trouble. Only one person is going to be there always for us. And that's Rachel. Rachel Mavaka Abadawa. That's what we say in Rosh Hashanah. Only Rachel stands by the borders waiting for the children to return. Because she knows what it means to, 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 to not have a place. That's the point. She's, but she's always baderech. And therefore, only the person who doesn't have a home can appreciate what it means not to have a home. If you're secure in your home, I don't care who you are, you don't actually understand what it means not to have a home, you know? I just came from a meeting. We're doing this. I advise everybody to go to it. We're doing a four-part session about work, the value of work. It's very interesting. I'm one of the four speakers. There's a speaker. It should be quite interesting. The nature of work, the value of work. So we're starting what is the work. It's the workplace as a spiritual place. So when they were talking, I said, stop. I'm all for it. We're going to do it. But here's a point I want to make about work. There are about 7 billion people that inhabit this planet. At least 6 billion of them are working for a very simple reason. Because if they don't work, they're not going to have supper. Let's not, let's not forget that with all the value of work. You know what I mean? The value of work is a luxury. We can talk about it. The stonecutters in Nepal aren't cutting the stone because it's a valuable exercise. They're not schlepping 100 pounds of stone the women there who have nothing, it's very simple. Because they have children, and if they don't care for their children, nobody else will, because there's no government there, actually. And therefore, they'll die. So therefore, that's why most people are working, okay? That's the reality of life. And that's very important to get the reality straight. We're still going to have the, the symposium. There still is a lot to talk about work. But the fact is, let's get real, you know what I mean? And that's the point about these confessions. Let's get real. You know? So this is, yes, Rachel is not there because at the end of the day the matriarch of Israel, the primary matriarch of Israel is not Rachel. It's actually Leah. Because at the end of the day the leaders of Israel the institutions of Israel, they don't come from Rachel. Joseph's always the outsider. The king is not from Rachel. The priest is not from Rachel. They're not. That doesn't mean there's not a place for Rachel. We love her. And we love her because she loves us. That's the point. And Joseph is very how do you incorporate the outsider? Joseph, in a way, is the outsider. That's the point about the Chumash. So, yes, there's a place, but she's Baderech. And that's the point. She dies because she steals idols. Let's, I mean, let's not forget that. She steals idols, steals the trophy. That's why she dies. Now, let me get to the point. This, I didn't mean to talk about an hour about this, but let me. But it's not bad either. So, let me get to the point I did want, what I did want to talk about this morning, which is something different. I hinted at it already. And that is, there is, other, is the confession. 
there is the slichot, but there's something else unusual about the Yom Kippur service. I, I'm talking about the classical service. I have no idea what people actually do or don't do. But there is, on Yom Kippur, in the Musaf of Yom Kippur, the reenactment of the service of the high priest, which also, by the way, is the Torah reading for Yom Kippur. It's one of the few examples that we have in our tradition where we actually reenact something. It's one of the few examples in our tradition where we can even see ourselves inside the temple. Because typically we don't. I remember 11 years ago, 12 years ago when I was in Israel, 1999, so I attended a, basically located the Hartman Institute at that time, and I attended an uh, interfaith conference. Mostly Jews, Christians, and then it was actually the first time there were some Muslims there as well. Anyway, after one of the sessions, they were talking about, it was about one of the Christians, and there was all kinds of conversation around this, about the synagogue and the, and the, uh, and the temple. There was discussion, I forget specifically, it was about the, the, the Christian view, seeing their place of worship as a kind of, as a kind of temple. And I was walking out, this was a, the one who led the presentation, I don't remember her name. She was from Harvard Divinity School. I walked out with her, and I asked some question. She said, she looked at me, she said, but you have the same thing. You have the ark in there, you have, your, you have the bima, you have the ark. So I wanted to say it in a nice way. Okay, so I, I was very sweet and everything. But let me tell you what I was thinking. Here's what I'm thinking. It's very interesting when you study another culture. He says, you don't know anything about it. No, you think you're going to understand the other culture from your perspective. But you understand nothing about the experience of the other person. Because the fact of the matter is, you may read something in some book someplace and hypothesize about it. But let me tell you, and I don't care what you read in your books, but let me tell you, as one who grew up in synagogues, that never in my experience... I talk about myself, and I'm sure this is true of virtually everybody. When I walked to shul, did I see myself inside the temple? Never. And that's for a lot of reasons. I'm not saying it doesn't have its own sanctity, mikdash ma'at, but the experience of being in the synagogue is not the experience of walking to the temple. The fact of the matter is, of course, in that tradition, you don't need to pray in the synagogue at all. That's why they had telephone booths years ago. You can walk it in Davin Mincha. Now with the cell phone, it obviates that need. You have a cell phone. You pretend, what are they? They're talking on the cell, right? Because people are talking in the street all the time, you know? They're talking on the phone. You don't see the phone. That's, so if you, you can Davin Mincha, and no one will know. You think they're talking to who knows what. But the main point is, how little do we know about the other person's experience? The fact of the matter is, I, said, I just said, it's not the experience of being in a temple. That's not the Jewish experience. Now, that is true in general. And you've got to wonder about this professor of, uh, of uh, religion doesn't understand the most basic thing about the way people function. How could you profess anything? That's a good question. But that's another, that's a kasha on the academics. It comes from a place of deep arrogance, actually, that you know. You know nothing. You know nothing about my experience. Nothing. And I know nothing about your experience. I confess that. Nothing. You can't get it from a book. That's not the experience of a Jew. I'm going to the temple. No. Now, except for two examples. There are two times where you could actually, we try to somehow reenact it. One is the 
service of the high priest on Yom Kippur, where we actually go through the whole service. And that is very interesting. And the other, I think, is Hoshana Rabbah. When you're walking around the synagogue, and there's a sense of actually, this is what they did in the temple, circling the, the altar in the temple, etc. But generally, that's not the experience. In any event, in Yom Kippur, you have the Avodah. So, I know some people say it, some of them may be more liberal synagogues, the Reform, Conservative, but they say the Avodah, they don't say the Avodah. They should, because they're missing on something very powerful. But, that's a problem for every synagogue to deal with. I mean, there are many, a lot of words on Yom Kippur, and I agree with that, but the question is what you're going to focus on. The service of the high priest is very interesting, and I want to just take a little time to talk about the Avodah of Yom Kippur. The Avodah of Yom Kippur is obviously a central piece of the service for the following reason. We know this because where it appears in the, in the service, it appears in the davening exactly in the same place that on Rosh Hashanah we have Malchi Yitzchronot and Shofrot. It's exactly, it's identical. We say, and then the Chazan asks permission to pray, and then we start with the Avodah. I'll get to the details of the Avod in two minutes. So it appears exactly in the service, exactly in the place that we have the Malchiot, Sichronot, and Shofar of Rosh Hashanah, which is the heart and soul of Rosh Hashanah. So on Yom Kippur, it, the heart and soul of the prayer service starts with the reenactment of the high priest service, which segues on Yom Kippur, for those who say Slichot and Musaf, few and far between, but in, in the classical Masr, it segues into Slichot. Because what we say is, that's what we had a temple. But we have no temple. It's like God saying to Moses, you can go to the land, but I'm not going to go with you. You can't, build, you can't have a Mishkan. You broke the tablets. No temple. And Moses prays. And after you, Slichot is always the confession. The confession on Yom Kippur, by the way, is interesting, is after Slichot, not before. Maybe next year we'll talk about that. It's, it's bizarre, actually. Think about it. We would have done it the opposite. First you confess the sins... And you ask God to forgive you. But we don't do that on Yom Kippur. We do the opposite. And we're all slichot, the opposite. First we ask for slichot. Then we confess. What is that about? Actually? I'm not getting into that now, but it's a good question. But the, just take note of it. Those are the pillars of the Yom Kippur service. Avoda, slichot, vidui. That's, that's Yom Kippur. Now, the avoda of Yom Kippur is, is interesting before I get to the specifics about the service and what we say, I want to make a different point about the Avodah, about Yom Kippur. The Avodah, basically, as we have it in our prayer books, is essentially, and it's very long, it's based on the Mishnah in Tractate Yoma, the Mishnah which deals with Yom Kippur. The Mishnah in Yom Kippur, there are eight chapters in Yoma, seven of the eight only the last chapter deals with, Yom, with our Yom Kippur, fasting and all the other inuyim, etc., repentance, that's all the last chapter. The first seven chapters of the tractate don't deal with that. The first seven of the eight chapters deal with the service of the priest, the service, the sacrificial service of Yom Kippur. And what concerns the Mishnah is something very interesting, which is that Yom Kippur is mentioned in different places within the Torah. Or t- twice, let's say. Two main places. It's mentioned with all the other holidays. On the tenth day, in both in Vayikra, chapter 23, and it's mentioned in the book of Bamidbar, chapter 28, which lists the, sac- the additional sacrifices for the holy days. 
there you have Yom Kippur. But in addition to those two places, which all the holidays are mentioned, there's one chapter in the Torah that, that only mentions Yom Kippur. And that is chapter 16 of the book of Vayikra, which is the classical Torah reading for the day of Yom Kippur. And that describes the service of the high priest. The service of the high priest has very striking features to it. What the Mishnah is concerned about is this problem. The Mishnah is concerned, apart from giving a, a rabbinic understanding of what the high priest actually does, which to some extent conforms to the Torah, but to another extent deviates from the Chumash, deviates in some significant ways from the Chumash, one striking way that is different from the Torah. That's one thing. In order to understand it, you have to study the Torah and study the Mishnah. The Mishnah always is interpreting, it's a reinterpretation, and part of it is simply describes. But the Mishnah has another problem, which is a very interesting problem, which is you have the day of Yom Kippur mentioned in the book of Bamidbar, chapter 28, and it's mentioned in Vayikra, chapter 23, and then there's a whole sacrificial service in, Vay- in Vayikra, chapter 16, and the question is how can one relate those two different parashiyot? In other words, in, in, in the book of Bamidbar, on the day of Yom Kippur, you bring a special carbon musaf. Apart from the sin offering of the Kippurim, you bring a musaf. But then when you read the parish in Vayikra, there's a whole long discussion about the service of the high priest. How do you relate, how do you reconcile and relate the parasha of Bamidbar and the parasha of Vayikra? And on top of that is something else. We know that in call from different places in the Torah, there was a daily sacrifice. There was a daily, there was a daily service in the temple. They lit the candles, they cleaned the altar, they brought the morning's tamid, they brought the afternoon tamid with its other libations. So we have to correlate three things. We have to correlate the daily service and the musaf, which is true of all the holidays. And then you have the service of the high priest. How do you, what did they do? What is, in one word, the Seder? What is Seder Avodat Yom Purim? That's what the Mishnah is concerned about, and that's what the Talmud is concerned about. And the interpreters of the Talmud understand the Talmud differently, and what's very interesting is, a shear I'm not going to give now, but I could give a shear on this, many have, would be to point out that in the avoda which is the poetic rendering of the service of the high priest. But you know that the Ashkenazim and the Sephardim don't say the same avoda. In fact, there are many avodas. Many were written. The one we have is a medieval composition, Amitz Koach. I think it's the most stunning liturgical composition that we have in our entire liturgy. It's truly beyond belief, beautiful, unbelievable thing. But it's based on, they're all based on the earlier ones. And what is very fascinating to study from a completely different point of view is you notice that the different liturgical poems differ in terms of what they did. There are many fine differences between what the Atakonanta that the Sephardim say suggests and what Amitz Koach suggests. I'll give you one example of it, but there are many. One example is this. One of the big questions that the Talmud deals with and the commentaries on the Talmud deal with at some length, is the following question. In the book of Vayikra, it says that, it starts off by saying, 
speak to Aaron. He shouldn't enter the Holy of Holies whenever he wants. His sons, after the death of his sons, don't enter my holy place, where I appear, says God, lest you die. Only, under, only in the following way may Aaron enter the Holy of Holies. He has to bring two of his own sacrifices, and from the congregation he takes three more sacrifices. Two goats and a, uh, and a, uh, and a ram. Two are sin offerings, and one is a burnt offering. And, this, and then it describes the service of the priest entering the Holy of Holies. Among other things, apart from all the sacrifices, he has to bring incense with him, and he fills the inner chamber with incense, and then he performs his, his, his the ketoret. After the ketoret, then he performs the sacrifice in the Holy of Holies. He brings his own sacrifice. He brings the communal sacrifice there. He goes out. He sprinkles blood in different places. He walks outside the temple. The scapegoat is waiting for him. He confesses upon the scapegoat. He sends it out. That are the core pieces of the Yom Kippur service. Absolutely core pieces of Yom Kippur. Now, here's the question. The Talmud assumes, and it sounds the way from the verses, that the only person who can do this is the high priest. The normal priest who work the rest of the year, they can do anything, but they can't do this. On Yom Kippur, only the high priest can perform the service. Question. Is that true of this particular part of the day? The entering the Holy of Holies, the scapegoat, the incense, the sacrifices described in that chapter? Or is it true of the whole day? Because remember, there are other things you do on the day. You do the musaf, and you have the daily service. So what about the daily service, which happens to be on Yom Kippur? Is it only the high priest, or is it anybody? So this is a great dispute, great dispute between commentaries on the Talmud. Great. It has all kinds of different opinions. The Ramban had one point of view. Rabbi Nusrachi Alevi had a different point of view. The pupils of the Ramban had a third refinement. The Rambam's position is something else. Big fight about this. What's interesting is, when you open up the poems which describe the Avodah, you see straight out that they disagree. The Sephardic poems typically have the high priest doing everything. The Ashkenazic poems, Amitz Koach, Amitz Koach only has the high priest doing certain things, but for the daily service, which in the temple was chosen according to the Talmud, by, they, would have, they would have lots, so nobody should fight. Who's doing what? They would choose it by, by lottery. They would choose it out. It appears in the Amitz Koach that it mentions the lotteries. The high priest only does certain things. This is a good example that these liturgical poems, popular their own, you know, kind of, kind of emotional value that they add and all that, they also are reflecting great disputes about the nature of the service of the high priest. And they probably can find 10 or 15 differences between the, the Sephardic, small things, between the Sephardic poems and the Ashkenazic poems. But they, at the core, the important point for us is A, what we have here is a Seder. Seder is very important. It's of course, it's very complex. And how you actually can somehow accommodate all these different pieces, how it works, is very striking. Now the understanding of the Talmud is the following. That the high priest on your... There's something else about the service of the high priest in the Holy of Holies, which is very interesting, which is that the service of the high priest 
when he performs these services of the incense and the inner holy of holies, he wears special clothing. He doesn't wear his typical big day kahuna. He wears linen clothing. And he doesn't seem to wear eight pieces of clothing that the high priest always wears. He wears only four. That's the, that's the rabbinic understanding, which does seem that way from the Chumash. That's the rabbi's understanding. They also understand that's just when he does the stuff, certain things. But for the stuff you do every day, he would wear his regular clothing. So he has to switch his clothing. He has to change clothing. And how many times does he change clothing on Yom Kippur? Who knows? Five. Oh, here Oops, let me stop. <laughs> Many Jews go to Shul on Yom Kippur. Now, I don't know, maybe, maybe some services don't actually read the service of the high priest, which is a pity, actually. But how can you, if I were a rabbi of a synagogue, how could you allow people, actually, who come there the entire time, how could, at some point in time, don't you want to explain what the heck we're saying? I mean, it, I think it boggles the mind. Like, I can't understand this, actually. It has all kinds of symbolic, emotional value, and there's zillions of questions you can ask, but not to know the most basic things about the service. It's just, it's no, there's no excuse for it, actually. It's, the Kohen Gadol changes clothing, his clothing. He starts off, basically, by wearing his regular clothing. There are five slots, as it were. There are five sessions, five different things. But each time, by the way, that he changes his clothing, he washes his hands and feet both before and after. So he washes himself ten times. And he changes the clothing five times. The first time he's wearing his regular clothing. Brings the morning sacrifice. It's all regular. The second slot is the big slot. The second slot is when he uh, goes into the Holy of Holies or the incense. That's, that's the big stuff. The scapegoat, the inner... Everything. Then he switches back to his regular clothing, to do something. What the something is is a huge dispute between the commentaries on the Talmud, but something he has to do. It's not clear what he... Maybe is to bring... Whatever it is, and the other sacrifices that are listed in the parasha. Maybe the Musaf. What about the fourth time? Here's where the Mishnah deviates from the, from the Torah text. Here's where the Mishnah says something that's not in the Torah. The Torah says that when he finishes, he goes back into the holy into the says he goes back into the holy place, takes off his clothing, and leaves it there. The Talmud is bothered by that. Well, he goes in, takes off his clothing, and the holy of holies is wearing nothing. What is what's, what is that? So the Talmud has a he, he goes back to change. Was that a changing room? What what is it? Why he goes back to change? They're bothered by this. So they construct something which is very interesting. What does he do on the fourth shift? There are five shifts. One, three, and five is regular stuff he does. There's a dispute about three and five. The Rambam, Rashi, they dispute some other time for that. But what does he do in shift number four? Shift number two, he does everything. He brings his own sacrifice, the people's sacrifice, goes to the Holy of Holies twice. He brings the incense, the scapegoat. That we got. But what does he do in shift number four? What else is there to do? He did everything. Who knows? Nobody knows what he does on shift number four. You'll never guess it. Wait a second. 
don't guess it because you cannot possibly guess this. And that's not an insult. No, no, no rational person could guess it, actually. Because it makes no sense, which means it's very important because they're, they're saying something. What they're saying, I'm not sure. They're saying something very important. It says the following. When he went in with the incense, okay, he had, how do you, how do you carry the coals? He's got to carry, it's not so simple. He has incense, but he also has a fire pan. And he also has a spoon, right, to take out the, the incense, right? He's got a spoon, right? He's got to take out the spoon to get this coals. He takes the coals off the altar. He puts them in a pan. Then he takes the incense and puts them on top of the, he's going to put the incense on top of the fire. It's not so easy to do this, by the way, but it's very difficult to do it. Says the Talmud, he walked into the Holy of Holies, so what is he doing? And then he has to throw, th- then he has to throw the blood, right? So when he's throwing the blood on, on top of the ark, next to the ark, on top of the curtains, where is the pan? Can't both throw the blood and have the pan. He puts the pan down. Says the Talmud, so what, what happens to that pan? That's when he goes back inside. He goes back on shift number four, Hotzad Kafu Machta, to take the spoon and the pan out. Now, this, think about this. It's actually a remarkable thing. It's something that, of course, that's not in the Chumash. The Chumash doesn't deal with this. The Chumash doesn't mention the, the pan. You go in with it, but doesn't say with the idea, what's striking, that for the rabbinic tradition, the Mishnah, that actually he re-enters the Holy of Holies to remove the pan. He doesn't call the, uh, the uh, maintenance there for that. Holy of Holies. He goes in twice to throw the blood of his own sacrifice and the blood of the people's sacrifice in the incense-filled chamber. But then he goes back afterwards by himself, of course. Hotzaz kafu machta. What is that about? I'm not even going to answer the question. But first of all, everybody should understand. And then the fifth shift is the finishing the sacrifice of the day. Maybe he lights the menorah, maybe he brings the afternoon incense, maybe he brings the most, there are many things. So these are the five shifts of the priest. Ordering them out, what's striking is the fourth shift. Basically what it sounds, let me just put something out there for you, not to leave it at this, what I think the, the rabbinic tradition is saying. What the rabbinic tradition is saying is actually, you enter the Holy of Holies for two different reasons. Sometimes you enter the Holy of Holies because there's work to be done. We go to many places because there's work to be done. Right? That's why. It's one reason. Sometimes you have a meeting with somebody because there's business to be done. You know, whatever the business is, personal, family, work-related, we have a lot of meetings. We meet people because we have things to do. But sometimes you meet somebody, there's nothing to do. You want to be with that person. It's not, it's not because you have something to do. So you find an excuse to meet, actually. Yeah. And that's Hotzah's comment. To me, what it sounds like is that what the rabbinic tradition is saying is the high priest enters the Holy of Holies for two different reasons. One is because there's work to be done. And what is the work of Yom Kippur? What is that work, by the way? It's very important. When you read the Torah, what does it say? Why does the priest enter the Holy of Holies? I'll tell you what it is. You can look it up yourself. You'll see. It's very important. It's not to atone for Israel's sins. It is, in a way, but that's not the focus. That's not what the Torah says. 
ויד אור מועד בית המזבח יכפר. ויד הכהנים ויד כהם הכהן יכפר. The focus in the Chumash of entering the Holy of Holies, the sprinkle on the ark, and the curtain that divides the ark from the second chamber, and the incense altar. It's not about primarily atoning for the people's sin. It's different. Milgram points this out, by the way, but it's, you don't even need Milgram for this. It's obvious. It's atoning for the temple itself. It's cleansing the temple. Because, as God says in the book of Vayikra, more than once, if you, do, if you do X, says God, you defile my temple. God bears Israel's sins. God means the temple. The temple is bearing Israel's sins. But the point is, the God in the temple, the forgiving God of the temple, whenever people misstep outside the temple, you actually defile the temple. So the, the focus of the high priest on Yom Kippur, actually, the inner service, is not so much to atone for Israel's sins, it's to atone for Israel's sins inasmuch as they have defiled the temple. But the focus, as the Torah says, the chiper, you, you shall atone, you shall purify the Holy of Holies, you shall purify the, uh, the, uh, the inner places, the sacred places, you shall purify the altar, and also you purify the people who have defiled. And then the second sacrifice, actually, the scapegoat, is to atone for the sins. The inner sacrifice is not to atone for the sins. The inner sacrifice is to atone for the sin of defiling God's temple, to defiling God's, God's holy places, defiling God's work. That's, that's the work that has to be done. But the second time the high priest enters the Holy of Holies, it's not about, actually, there's, there's no sacrifice. The second time the high priest enters the Holy of Holies, it's different. It's actually standing before God. The only thing is, you can't just walk into the hall. You need an excuse. That's my understanding of it. The excuse, though, I left something. You know, it's like borrowing sugar from your neighbor. You know what I mean? It's the big, basically, it's not about borrowing. Sugar. It's the excuse to stand in God's presence without sacrifice, without cleansing, without purification. Yom Kippur, at the end of the day, is l'fnei Hashem titaro to be purified before God. So the, the very standing has is, is purified without sacrifice, without anything just to be in God's presence. So the rabbis made up something. In the Chumash, you'd never find this in a million years. He goes a second time into the Holy of Holies to remove the kafel bachta, mind bachta, actually. After the, the Torah warns you to death about be careful going in, be going with this sacrifice, that sacrifice, incense, four different sacrifices, the power of the sawyer. And then he goes in later just to get his, out of his spoon. I mean, the whole thing is... But of course, it's not about that. It's about once having performed the ritual service you then want to stand before God as a standing as, as, a, as a pure person. It's different when you stand before God as a sinner and when you stand before God as having been atoned, having, having been purified. There is something so exhilarating, which, by the way, I wish we had more time now, which, by the way, when you read Amit's Koach, everybody should read it. I don't care if you don't even say it. You've got to read it. The, the Hebrew is incredibly difficult, by the way, the economy of language of this guy is beyond belief. It's just, it starts with creation of the world. In short order, he gets through all, basically all of, all of human history. The, the economy is just mind-boggling. The use of language, it's, it's stunning. At the end of this, it starts with creation and all the various mistakes people have made, the sins. You get to 
Jacob, you get to Levi, you get to Aaron, the high priest. The high priest walks into the Holy of Holies, the entire cosmos is on, the responsibility for all creation is on his shoulders. It's very powerful. One solitary person is responsible for the universe and performs this ritual which purifies everything. And then this poet describes what happens when the high priest walks out, having completed his service. You've got to read this. It's truly stunning. And the way he uses the... And it's all, all poor, of course, it's all, it's all in, a, in a acrostic form. So he's very constrained with the language. But nonetheless, let's see if we can just conclude with this. This is on page... 165, actually. On 165, the fifth line, Tama to Lavet Sir The economy of language. Tama, the perfect ones, means the people. To Lavet Sir accompany the, the faithful messenger to his house. And you have a series of, 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 of poetic lines which begin with the letter Tuf. Right? Togel bit baser hushlag odem tolab. Tade yeshe tatem il tzedaka. Tafik tzala tabia ditz vechedva. Describes the joy over here. Zarzif talam. Herifu zarzif. Tule rum herifu zarzif talam. Tame sadai ravu tetivulam. Torah <laughs> So sing the Galim Bishmokalayom, Chadib is in Chad Panav, Ziva Ram Kashacha Yibaka, Kalam Yisub Yorono Begon Suragamim, Ashrea Am Shakacharo, Ashrea Am Shashem Elokav. There's nothing in that tradition like this, by the way. It is, if you don't think, it's so stunning. I mean, it describes, first of all, the joy having completed this, very, actually very perilous, it's dangerous, entering the Holy of Holies, as God says, be careful. One misstep and you die. So it's very dangerous, and the responsibility to atone for the entire community, the entire people, the entire world. And the, the relief, actually, that people feel when this guy walks out of there having done his job, the faithful servant. And then this poet subtly puts it in cosmic terms, the world is rejoicing. That's his point. And the, the language, all, all citations from the Bible, all in, all in alphabetical, all with a letter tough, and describing the unbelievable joy. There's nothing like this in our entire tradition. And it ends with Ashrayam, happy are the people. Right? Happy are the people. Happy is such a people. Happy is the people whose God is the Lord. That's how it ends. So you, 
there's something very special about this that we we are trying to put ourselves. We have no temple, as we say next. We have that's what's missing. You enter into this world. I would say you enter into this mythical world, and when you're reading this, you actually want to be in the temple. That's the point. Whether you want a temple or don't want a temple, when you walk out, it's, it's irrelevant. But in reading this, we are connecting in some deep way to this idea of the, the idea of the, of the God who cleanses you and who purifies the world. And you're so pure and you, you're so clean when you walk out of this. That's what it's talking about. It's unbelievable. So this is what we are. This is a core piece, of course, that we say, but now we have no temple. Now we, we're missing. And this describes the poet, Mare Cohen, what it must have looked like when they had it. And now we don't. Slichus. That's that's because what generates this penitential service is God's absence. God's absence. What's what Moses Hashem Hashem Kerachum V'Chanun was Moses' prayer to God when God said to Moses, "You can go to the land, but you can't have my presence. You can't have the Mishkan." Hashem Hashem Kerachum V'Chanun Slichus. So in the Avoda, in the service of Yom Kippur, that's how it works. You start with the reconstruction of the service and this unbelievable description. And what it must have been like if you want to put yourself there. Mare Cohen, Aval, but. But we don't have it. But our sins have prolonged the temples, the absence of the temple, which means God's, God's hiddenness. 